Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we continue in the book of Joel with chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of Yahweh is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people, Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path, they burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of Yahweh is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now declares Yahweh, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of Yahweh, weep and say, Spare your people, O Yahweh, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then Yahweh became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Yahweh answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. 
The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am Yahweh your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom Yahweh calls. This is the word of the Lord. So our text today really starts just where yesterday was, which is the idea of God's judgment, this locust swarm that is coming to destroy, and that the Lord has called them to repent. So that's what we get to examine a little bit here at the start. Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. Uh, This would be the trumpet. Numbers 10 describes the various purposes of trumpets, and there are several that could fit here, uh, but with the rest of verse 1, sound an alarm, and that's the purpose. It is the watchman over the city that is supposed to warn that battle is coming. And so battle is coming. Let the inhabitants tremble in fear for the day of Yahweh. His judgment has come. And this day of judgment will be dark with gloom, clouds, darkness. Now in this text, that's a reference to the locusts. Locust swarms, when they came, could block out the sun. They could be so numerous. But I want you to make this connection later. I want you to see this as a family to something that comes later. So maybe ask your children this. Can you remember a day of darkness in Jerusalem? A day when Jerusalem and the whole world were covered with thick darkness. And the hope there is that you can recall the crucifixion. That in Jerusalem, on that holy mountain... Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross, and for the three hours from noon until three, there was a darkness that covered the whole land. That's a great connection to make here, that God's judgment was poured out upon his son, Jesus Christ, and because of that, our sins are forgiven. And ultimately, again, the book is going there, but it takes a little time to unpack. This is a historic prophecy, and prophecies often had a twofold meaning, one in the near future, relevant to the people who would hear the prophecy, and then one, again, that refers to Christ later on and is fulfilled much greater, in a much greater way. So, like blackness spread upon the mountains of great and powerful people, that's not people. It's a reference, again, to the locusts, the army that the Lord is using to crush Jerusalem and Judah for their unrepentance at this point. So fire devours before them, a flame behind them, 
everything everything's destroyed is the reference here it's like the garden of eden when they come and then a desolate wilderness a wasteland when they leave they consume it all garden of eden paradise lush green but now nothing nothing escapes them their appearance like the appearance of horses they like war horses they run i mentioned that the parallel here to Revelation 9, that Revelation 9 intentionally uses this language, and really intentionally uses the Old Testament language, primarily the prophets, but also some for Moses. So all kinds of war imagery, so the rumbling of chariots, devouring the stubble, that's like scorched earth policy right there. You burn down the crops of your enemy so they have nothing left to eat. Even the stubble, you leave nothing, nothing for them. So the people are in anguish. Their faces grow pale. That's like you look at a terrible disaster that's coming upon you and the shock that you have. Like if you can imagine a swarm of locusts coming your way, just this giant wall of blackness moving towards you. You could imagine you might grow pale in the face. And then they charge like warriors, scaling the walls, each on his way, they don't swerve. That that reference to not swerving is, I mean, perhaps you could talk about locust behavior. Uh, from what I've seen of locust swarms, they're, they're kind of going all over the place. But it's a reference to the idea that this comes from God. And so their, their course cannot be changed except for by God. So they're not going to swerve. God's judgment has been declared is the, the key. They burst through weapons. I mean, that's the picture here. Uh, again, the warrior swarm, I mean, they, the locust swarm, as they come upon you, I mean, you're welcome to swing a sword all you want. It's not going to do anything to the swarm. I mean, you might hit a, a few, but that swarm's still going to overwhelm you. There's so little that a weapon could possibly do. They're not halted. And so then you get this picture, they leap upon the city, on, they run up the walls, they climb up the houses, they enter through the windows. Nowhere safe. The plagues of Egypt were like this, in a way. Um, you might remember something like the frogs being all over, even in the homes of the people. Earthquakes, heavens tremble. So again, fear everywhere. The heavens uh, reference in the Old Testament anew alike, not just to where God lives, but the heavens being a reference to the sky, what we think of as space, and then also where God lives. So there's the three levels of heaven, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 14. Sun and the moon are darkened. In this case, literally blocked out by this swarm of locusts. But this phrase gets used a lot in the New Testament in regards to prophecies of the end. Matthew 24, verse 29, Mark 13, 24, Luke 21, verse 25, Acts chapter 2, verse 20, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, this is judgment language. For Joel, right here, very specific to this judgment at this time with Jerusalem and Judah. But again, prophecies often have a future fulfillment as well. Yahweh utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. This is an army camp, right? The people, the nation, but again, it's locusts. The Lord's army that he chooses to use in this case is exceedingly great. It's a swarm of locusts. Who can fight against it? He executes his word. And it's done. 
the day of Yahweh is great and very awesome. This is an opportunity to teach your children the true meaning of the word awesome. I mean, in the U.S. English today, awesome means something that's really good. Hey, that's awesome. I'm, you know, I had an awesome day today. That's not what the word means. I know we've kind of changed it. We can do that with language, but that's not its original intent. The word all is fear. And some is a suffix to the word is to be worthy of. And so awesome means something that is worthy of fear. The day of Yahweh is worthy of fear. Yahweh is worthy of fear. He is awesome. Who can endure it? That's a great question. And I do want you to talk about this question as a family. And if you have the chance, if you want to, take a look at the end of Revelation chapter 6, and you'll see the same question. The idea of God's judgment coming, of this suffering destruction, and then the question, who can endure it? Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, it's how the chapter ends. And then there's a pause. And oftentimes, uh, scholars or commentators will call chapter 7 of Revelation like an interlude in the midst of these events. Chapter 7 is not an interlude. It answers the question. Chapter 7 answers who can endure that judgment. And it's the church. The 144,000 of Israel, that's, you know, 12 times 12, Old Testament church, New Testament church, times 10 times 10 times 10, full completeness. It's the fullness of God's people from every era of history. They will be there, gathered around his throne forevermore, singing in paradise, celebrating the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom that has no end. Revelation 7 answers the question, who can endure? And in this case, Again, it's, we're starting to see this, this layers of this prophecy here. Who can endure? Well, it's going to be tough for the Israelites, to, the Judaites, to endure this locust swarm. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, as the end of the chapter says, will be saved. There will be a remnant. There will be some in Jerusalem who escape. And among the survivors are those that the Lord has called. And again, that, that grows in its meaning as we think about the end of the world, as we think about the return of Christ. So then we shift in the text after the question to repentance. That's, that's how you endure in the text of Joel. You endure by repenting. Return to God with all your heart. Fast, weep, mourn. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Although rending your garments is a sign of sorrow. But the idea is change. Repent. Turn back. Trust in Yahweh. Return to Yahweh. Verse 13, so good here. These are words to focus on, right? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Talk about this as a family. Confess your sins together, repent together, and then absolve each other. You can do that. You can tell your children that their sins are forgiven, and they can tell you yours are forgiven too. I mean, this action of forgiveness in our household is a beautiful thing that strengthens our faith together. This is who God is. His judgment, it's true. He's righteous and just. But this is his normal thing. This is who he wants to be with us. Just like a parent, right? The parent doesn't want to discipline the child. 
but the parent disciplines when they have to because they know for the good of the child, the child needs it. The parent wants to love. The parent wants to show grace. So it is with the Lord. He does not want to be a God of judgment, acting in judgment against us because we're doing evil things. He wants us to repent of the evil and live. So he wants to show us grace and mercy. He wants to give us his gifts. He wants to reject judgment over us. He is slow to anger, very patient with us. I mean, imagine this world, all the sin in this world, and yet here we are. Genesis 6, the wiping out of the world with the flood. We deserve it, but he's being patient. He's keeping his promise that he would not do so again. He abounds in steadfast love. Uh, Hesed, a great Hebrew word that we really can't translate in English. Steadfast love is what ESV prefers. Loyalty, covenant faithfulness, um, loving kindness, mercy. There's so many ways you see it brought across. He abounds in his faithfulness to us. And he relents over disaster. This is like Nineveh. And that's the question in 14, right? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Like Nineveh. Jonah, the prophet, goes to Nineveh calling them to repent. And they do. And the king says essentially this thing. You know, who knows whether Yahweh will relent? And he does. So God calling his people back. Verse 15, we saw actually part of this in the chapter yesterday, chapter 1, verse 14. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people together in repentance. Gather everyone, congregation, elders, children, even nursing infants. Everyone needs repentance. Everyone needs forgiveness. Uh, Bridegroom and bride in their chamber, so the honeymoon can wait. This is more important. Come on out. Between the vestibule and the altar. I'm not sure if this means inside or outside. So the vestibule would be like the opening foyer of the temple, when the gate in which you enter the temple itself, the physical building. If this is the altar of the burnt offering, where sacrifices are made, then the priests are outside of the temple praying to Yahweh. Or if it's the altar of incense, which is often in Revelation compared to the prayers of the saints, then the priests are inside the temple between the opening and the altar praying to the throne of God. So I lean towards that one. So the priests are praying on behalf of the people. They're weeping and they're praying, spare your people. Don't make us a byword among the nations. Don't let the nations kind of look at this and scoff. Why should they say, where is their God? So why should they look at this as your failure, O Yahweh? That's the way the world sees God's judgment. I mean, think of it today. How many times do atheists complain about Something like, how can a good God let evil exist? Evil doesn't exist because of God's fault. I mean, we're evil. We're sinners. It's what we do. If God were going to remove evil from this earth, he'd have to wipe us out entirely. So the world does not understand the ways that the Lord works, and that's what we see there. So the Lord is going to have pity. I'm going to have to fly through this section because I do want to talk about the end. He's going to restore. He's going to bring grain and wine back. He's going to satisfy his people. Uh, He's going to remove northerners from them. That could be a future reference here, again, to the destruction coming from Assyria and Babylon. Rather than cross the Jordan River with their armies, when they come in the centuries to follow, they'll come from the north. They'll come around the Sea of Canareth or the Sea of Galilee, and they'll head down from the north to attack. So God is going to remove the enemy. 
But in this case, again, very specifically to Joel, uh, driving them into the Eastern Sea, the Salt Sea, and the Western Sea is the Mediterranean Sea. He's driving away these locusts who have done evil things, great things. But Yahweh has now done great things by sparing them. So he's going to restore. Even the wilderness, the pastures are restored, green again, the trees bear fruit again. The people can be glad. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So a reversal of chapter 1, verse 4. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am Yahweh your God, there is none else. Repentance, to trust in God above all things. First commandment here, you shall have no other gods before me. It shall come to pass afterward. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. This is Acts 2. Peter in his Pentecost sermons quotes from this right here. Again, this is waves of judgment, waves of restoration. God is going to restore his people. They're going to prophesy. They're going to talk about his word with one another. And that's what it is in Acts 2 when Peter says that your sons and daughters shall prophesy. It's a, they're both going to speak God's word to other people. They're sharing the goodness of God with others, the message of repentance and forgiveness and salvation that comes in Christ alone. Even your servants will have the Spirit. So even male, female, slave, free, that's Galatians 3.28, Jew and Gentile alike will be saved. Acts, the book of Acts, the, the descent of the, the blanket from heaven where God teaches Peter to not call anything unclean that he has called clean, that's a reference not just to animals but to people. God's goodness is for all. Then we get the the work of God again in the judgment, wonders in the heavens, sun to darkness, moon to blood. For this judgment that we've seen already, that was a reference to the swarm of locusts, but this gets a little more specific and again picked up in the New Testament. Acts 2, Revelation 6, both use this sun to darkness, moon to blood language as a reference to the end times, to the return of Christ and the judgment that comes on the final day. And while we may not be able to describe what this is, we just trust God at his word. We know this is coming. We know Christ is going to return, but that everyone who calls on his name shall be saved. Paul picks that up in Romans 10. There is a remnant. God has provided a remnant among his people, and this is true even today. Even though Christians are persecuted, killed in many places in this world, there are survivors, and the Lord calls them his own, and he will save them when Christ returns. Let us praise the Lord incarnate, Christ who suffered in our place. Jesus died and rose victorious, that we may know God by grace. Let us sing.